0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
0: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast.
1: We are going to be joined right now by Rich Ferraro, Chief Communications Officer for GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. I know it's Pride Week in new york and i think it's pride month generally we have uh flags all over the place i've got a lapel pin that i was given um a couple weeks ago and visibility is just huge here um i think that not only on wall street and not only on the coast but really across the middle of the country and now on to at least this continent here in europe people are really recognizing and sell and celebrating gay pride rich um Am I wrong in that this has become just a, just a massive event? Um, is it is it completely uh, I don't want to say completely accepted, but is it is it celebrated now by a majority of the people across the Western world?
2: Yeah, we've definitely seen LGBTQ acceptance grow over recent years. You can see uh, the NFL player Carl from the Las Vegas Raiders as he came out earlier this week. There wasn't a backlash <clears throat> from his teammates. Or from the nfl there was acceptance and that's a great everybody thing wanted to, to buy the jersey about. right yeah. best selling jersey this week that was great yeah. news um and i think pride is that moment when you see the community stand up and be very visible throughout the year but you also see our allies stand up and what's great about um this year is we're seeing allies from all um areas of business whether it's financial or b2c companies um companies are stepping up. And I think that's because not only our community expects to see that, but the allies of our community expect to see brands that um, stand with and for LGBTQ people.
0: Yeah, Rich, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I've I've spent my career studying the media industry. So I'm fascinated by your visibility project that you launched with Procter & Gamble and looking at advertising and, and marketing towards this community. What are some of the big findings you guys had?
2: Yeah. And um, so I've been with GLAAD since 2008. And GLAAD does a lot of work um, creating public campaigns for ways people could take action. But most of our work is behind the scenes with media companies, with Hollywood, and um, more and more with brands and advertisers to leverage that reach of media and the power of media to affect change, to tell the stories that are going to create a difference. And with Procter & Gamble, the world's largest advertiser, we've been working with them for the last few years. And um, last month launched the visibility project because they've stepped up as a corporate ally to LGBTQ people to say We want to create resources for the advertising industry and for brands to get LGBTQ inclusion Right when I started at Glad, there was a lot of hesitation from brands to include gay dads in in an ad um, Or to include LGBTQ people in public communications because people, brands were worried about an anti LGBTQ backlash this year, we released research with Procter & Gamble that found that uh, we, we surveyed brand executives and execs at ad agencies and found that the execs were not worried about that anti-LGBTQ backlash. They were worried about the community seeing their, um, their campaigns and their ads as authentic. So with Procter & Gamble, we said, let's create some resources because advertising is very powerful and reaches people that need to see LGBTQ people and hear our stories. That's the power of brands and ads, but let's create some resources and best practices to do it right.
1: Bottom line is you've got really a tailwind here in 2000, where are we, 2021, but GLAD was founded in 1985 because the New York Post and really a lot of media had defamatory and sensationalized HIV and AIDS coverage. What are the biggest problems that you're fighting today, Rich?
2: Um. Biggest problems right now. So our our team is exhausted this year because we have been battling back against over 200 anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation introduced just this year in states around the country. Eight states moved to ban transgender youth from participating in sports, even though Every leading medical um, association said that was not necessary and teachers groups and brands also spoke out against those bills as well. And then our community has been pushing for decades for uh, the Equality Act, which is now stalled in the Senate, largely because of the filibuster. The Equality Act would write non-discrimination um, and protect LGBTQ people against discrimination on a federal level. Right now, there's this patchwork of laws around the country that determine whether or not we can be served a piece of cake, whether or not our families can um, be turned away from a doctor just because of who we are. And we need that Equality Act um, to um, create one um, non-discrimination law on a federal level.
0: Hey, Rich, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts. Rich Ferraro, he's the Chief Communications Officer for GLAD, that's a Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against a Defamation, doing some important work there. And as he said, kind of exhausting year, dealing with uh, the, the various uh, legislations across various states here, uh, but it's good to get some time from Rich. Really rich people in America don't have
1: to pay taxes. They figure their way out of it usually. But those of us in the middle class end up working for Uncle Sam pretty much half the year. That's why (laughs) Congress gave us the Roth IRA. It allows us a little bit of a break when the tax man cometh. And poor people like Peter Thiel have figured out a great way to use it. Let's bring in Ben Steverman right now, personal finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Um, Poor Peter... Put some <laughs> worthless shares in his Roth IRA, and now he's got a little bit of a nest egg, eh, Ben?
3: Yeah, it's 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 a it's a small one. Um, yeah, he he really uh, has has seems to have played the system here. Um, you know, ProPublica got these tax records, so they're able to tell this story that stretches back to 1999 when PayPal was a privately a private company. It was a startup, and what Peter Thiel did was take a uh, less than 2 million, almost 2 million shares of that private company. Uh, they were valued at just a 10th of a cent at that time. And he was able to put them in an IRA and say, oh, it's only uh, you know less than $2,000, which was the contribution limit at that time, less than $2,000, it's legal. I can put this money in, into a Roth IRA. Um, the next year, the value of those shares soared um, to like 4 million, I, I guess, uh, some observers would say they were always worth more than that. This is an artificially low valuation he was using. And now he he sort of moved that those investments from, from uh, PayPal, which paid off handsomely, and then into Facebook and then into Palantir and into all these other investments that he's um, gotten rich on. And he now has this $5 billion pool of money that he never has to pay taxes on.
0: Wow. I was looking at my IRAs and 401ks recently, and I'm th- feeling pretty good about myself until I saw your story, Ben. I'm like, all right, Peter Thiel's got me B here. When I first read your story, Ben, I said, all right, there's a scam here. This is something that the IRS is going to have to take a look at. But in reality, it doesn't seem like he did anything wrong. Well, I mean, except it's- for the valuation. I want to point out, yeah. um, Ben, it
1: wasn't a tenth of a cent. Those PayPal shares were valued at one one thousandth of a cent. <laughs> Um, so the question is, was that a fair valuation for the 1.7 million shares of PayPal that he put into his Roth I- IRA? And a reminder to listeners, I mean, we all know, sadly, because it's so painful, you can contribute at most $2,000 a year to this vehicle.
3: The PayPal was already getting going at this point. Uh, Teal had, um, had already he'd lent like hundred thousand dollars to the startup it's hard to believe that that, w- that was what the the shares were worth given the fact that you know just a few months later they attracted a, a bunch of investors uh, i think that valued the firm at millions of dollars so so yeah that is the part that's a little fishy the, the problem is that when um, the irs just doesn't have hasn't had the resources to go in and, and Argue with rich people about what the valuations of these things should be, so that they're just completely outgunned and they just just don't have the resources.
0: So, is this something that the IRS is looking at? I mean, again, it seems like a one-off. It seems like a a good trade. I mean, what what are you hearing from the IRS? Well there
3: is um the IRS ha- has limited tools like i think the IRS has started to track this more at least and figure out exactly how many like 6 7 years ago they had no idea how many of these accounts were out there now they actually have some reporting requirements so so they've they, they've started to compile some data what what the real forum that i'm watching is congress because um there's a chance that congress could um, try to rein these in by saying, okay, over a certain limit, a Roth IRA is no longer no longer avoids taxes, and and tries to force some of these back onto the tax books.
1: I, I just want to point out, Ben, if you update this story, so uh, so Peter Thiel partnered with others to start PayPal. Elon Musk was one of those others, right? And I remember back in 1999, this is when they were valuing the shares at one one thousandth of a cent. Elon Musk bought a million-dollar McLaren F1 supercar at the time with his, <laughs> with his PayPal riches. So there were already some people that were giving the business a fair value because there were only 62 of those cars in the world, and, and he got one. Somehow a, you knew that, Matt. It's, yeah. You tie why?
0: everything <laughs> to that F1 McLaren. All right, Ben, thanks so much for that. We appreciate it. Ben Steverman, personal finance editor for Bloomberg News. All right, Matt, let's talk technology here. We know we've it's kind of gotten a little bit under the radar in terms of performance as people have been rotating into some of the cyclical names on the reopening. But for me, for I kind of feel like you can't take your eye off the technology ball because that's the, the long term future. And our next guest is an expert. Why do I say expert? Because I remember this guest when she was a young analyst, as I was back at Payne Weber, way back in the day. We're talking the 80s, Ooh. Matt. So we go way back. Erica Clower, Technology Equity Portfolio Manager, Jennison Associates, one of the best firms on the street for a long time. Erica, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, I know you don't remember, but uh, again, we started way back in the day at Payne Webber. You were doing technology there. I was doing uh, uh, actually transportation, but. Paul You're was sp- wearing suspenders with slicked back hair. Absolutely. That was the day of Gordon Gecko. So we were doing that. Erica, talk to us about your view of technology. Where should that be in the average investor's portfolio? Because it had been such a driver for portfolios really since the financial crisis, but let's take a little bit of a backseat recently.
4: Well, gosh, thanks so much for such a warm welcome. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be chatting with you today. And, you know, technology is really, I think, the place to be. And what's interesting for my perspective is that every company has become a technology company, Um, whether you're a transportation company, whether you're a consumer company, every company has to use technology today to be relevant and disruptive in the marketplace. Um, And those that are not effectively using technology are not keeping up. And we see this time and time again, um, as we meet with companies that the companies that are really reaching out to use technology do tend to be share gainers and disruptors and have greater positioning in the marketplace relative to their peers.
1: So um, Peter Oppenheimer last week, I think, in a a note out at Goldman Sachs, said that this disinflationary secular trend that we've been watching for the past couple of decades has contributed to a a concentration, a a, a narrower group of these kind of must-own Stocks, we all know what they are, right? And there was a similar group in the in the in the seventies with the Nifty Fifty. Um, but that this kind of leadership might change if we see a secular change towards an inflationary environment. What do you think about that?
4: Well, first, I would say I don't think that there has been any change in our belief that technology is the ultimate inflation fighter. And I think there's two real uh, legs behind that. One is that technology does drastically improve productivity. It helps people do the things in their lives that they want to do more efficiently. Um, And then secondly, I think that the cost side of the equation continues to be brought down by technology, whether it be just bringing down the cost of inputs or even labor. So, for example... We've seen the elimination of the broker value in so many different sectors, whether it be buying a plane ticket, uh, planning a trip, finding a taxi or getting a ride share, um, or even finding someone to do small jobs around your house. You're able to really price those out using technology avenues, um, and that ultimately does bring down inflation.
0: So, Erica, where are you and your team doing the most work here? Where do you find the most uh, opportunities, the most value in that tech stack?
4: Well, you mentioned before that there were the, the, the bigger caps names and then, you yeah. know, one and, and how does that relate to some of the smaller names? I think it's better to look at the end markets and find opportunities there. And I would draw your attention to three that I think are particularly important. The number one, I would say, would be artificial intelligence, and what that really is is looking at big reams of data and being able to quickly identify trends within those big reams of data, and that can be using everything from cybersecurity to identify security breaches to drug companies that are looking at trends in data to find new drugs. Um, You've seen some of the big drug companies come up with Uh, drugs much, much more quickly than they have in the past by using AI. So AI is artificial intelligence is one of the most important sectors to look at right now. I would say the second is e-commerce. We're still at a very early phase in e-commerce and all the digital payments associated with that and the advertising opportunities associated with e-commerce. That's still a very big global opportunity with many companies positioned to do very well in that segment. And the third segment I would mention would be energy efficiency, not just utilities moving away from using coal to alternative energies, whether it be solar or hydrogen, but also the actual appliances, whether they're used in the home or in the office uh, or in any kind of commercial space, moving to more efficient ways of using energy to bring down energy costs by using sensors, by using robotics. These are the areas that we see as having the best long tails for growth over the next decade,
1: Erica, great to get your take on tech. Erica Clower is technology equity portfolio manager over at Jennison Associates, talking to us about um, really the stocks I think that we all know and seemingly everyone owns and everyone thinks of when you when you talk about
0: the. The yeah, it's been interesting, you seen. know, over, over the last nine months, though, it's they've kind of fallen a little bit below the radar screen as people have been playing the reopening trade. But, man, the long-term growth story is still there, as Erica said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great to get your take, Erica. Thanks for joining us. Hope we can get you back again. This is Bloomberg.
0: After the close today, the Federal Reserve will release the results of its 2021 stress tests. And you, know, you think about the financial crisis coming out of that. These were really, really big deals. And I think they're still kind of important because it goes to the issue of returning cash to the shareholders. And, and, and these stress tests are, are pretty important. So when we talk about anything on the banking front, we go to our expert. That's Allison Williams. She's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She covers all the financials she has for decades. Uh, both on, uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence and then before that at Morgan Stanley Investment Management in New York, where she uh, was an analyst there. Allison, what are the key things here that bank investors are looking for when the stress tests are released after the close today?
5: So the key thing we'll be looking for today, along with um, other investors and analysts, um, are uh, you know, what are the stressed capital losses in the test? So these tests have evolved, and um, basically what happens with the test now is um, the regulators look at what that stress capital losses, uh, you know, sort of bucket is. So basically, how does your capital change from today to the worst point, right? And then based on that, they set a requirement, and then as long as you meet that requirement, you can basically, you know, do as you like. So it's a lot different than in the previous test where the banks had to ask for a dividend and a very specific buyback program. And in fact, we already have buyback programs across several banks. So really what we learned today is, you know, will banks be able to execute on those programs? Um, and we may get, you know, sort of a signal in terms of how much capital they can return from here.
1: How much? That was going to be my question. How much do we expect? I think I saw a number around $160 billion yesterday.
5: Yeah, so I think, um, so Arnold Kakuda, who covers the, the credit side of the banks, uh, uh, calculates about $150 billion of excess capital. Um, when we look at that amount, um, we agree with his calculation, obviously. Um, but we would also note that when we look at what <laughs> Not happened <obvious>. in December- <laughs> You can have disagreements.
0: Uh, Arnold's work is very good. No, I can we vouch
5: can, for we, it. We can, we can disagree, but we actually uh, agree in this, in this instance. So I think we agree on the excess capital, and I think we also agree that if you look at the December test, um, you know, Goldman performed much better in that test. Morgan Stanley performed much better in that test. This test is going to look a bit more like that test in the sense that we're going to be much, it's it's a much harsher test of things like commercial real estate and credit cards. So that's that's not sort of where those banks are focused. And if we do mirror that test, uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are both going to see their um, you know requirement drop, and so they should be able to return capital to shareholders. And and again, so Arnold and I aren't the only ones thinking this. I think a lot of people. Um, are expecting Goldman to get some relief and so if they don't that would obviously be a negative surprise and and by the way Goldman and Morgan Stanley should both get relief it's just a little bit more critical for Goldman because Morgan Stanley has much more excess capital
0: so Allison, where are you know dividend yields now for some of these big banks and, and where do you think they should be
5: so that's a great question because we really think that um, you know Bank of America is sort of going to set the standard, if you will, going forward. So ever since the global financial crisis, we've had banks sort of marching up their dividends. And, you know, someone like Wells Fargo had gotten to sort of a 45% payout rate. And that was similar to what we saw prior to the global financial crisis. However, Bank of America said, you know, we're going to walk up our dividend, but we never want to cut our dividends again. Uh, You know, 30%, we've done the work, and 30% um, dividend payout looks to us like something that's, you know, on the safer side of things. And what we saw in this um, pandemic, uh, we did see limiting of dividends, and we did see Wells Fargo have to cut their dividend as the Fed um, basically set a precedent by saying, you know what, until until things get better, we appreciate that you've cut the buybacks, but we also want you to limit your payout to four-quarter trailing earnings. So Wells Fargo had to cut. Um, And so I think – and a lot of regionals, you know, is also a little bit of a nail-biter. But with all the stimulus and the fast recovery, things turned out great. But we think that banks are going to sort of factor this into their forward thinking in terms of, you know, no one wants to be in a position to cut their dividend. And so we do expect Wells Fargo is going to have the biggest increase, right? But they're coming from, you know, sort of their cut level, so they're still catching up a little bit. So still healthy – Dividend yield, Um, you know, Citigroup, we think, could could have a a 3% yield. Um, You know, that's sort of similar to that's basically where they are today. Uh, We don't think that's going to change much. J.P. Morgan City, smaller increases. Um, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs maybe walking it up a little bit um, to get closer to that, you know, 2-ish percent level. J.P. Morgan, by the way, is the only bank that's a little bit over that 30%. um, And we expect, again, just sort of a nudge up there.
1: Allison, how prevalent are buybacks in the banking industry compared to other others? And I noticed that, you know, share buybacks for the overall market hit a high, I think, 2017, 2018. But they've come down substantially since then. Does that bounce back up after this?
5: So keep in mind that these banks um, basically were very conservative with capital. Um, Again, we talked about sort of the pauses during the pandemic. So they have access. And so, and, and also, at least, you know, the, the bigger banks that I cover are somewhat limited in their acquisitions. You know, they, they, because of their deposit bases, they can't go out and buy other depository institutions. They have done things like buy asset management and the like. But we do expect that payouts for um, the big banks, the big universal banks I cover, are going to exceed 100% for a period of time as they're working down some of that excess that they've built up. I would say that, um, again, a difference in this year's test is that a lot of regionals don't have to participate, but we do expect those regionals to pay over 100 percent. Again, be a little bit more cautious on the dividend side. Um, Herman Chan has said that he expects fifth third to increase their dividend, but maybe not anyone else. And then on the trust banks uh, covered by Paul Goldberg, he's also looking for over 100 percent capital return. So. I think investors are, are, are pretty bullish looking at the year ahead. By, by the way, do you keep your eye
1: on European banks? Because it's been a hot topic over the last few weeks for investors. And, you know, the idea is that they're going to raise payouts as well, which could bring them closer to um, the kind of gains we've seen for U.S. banks. But I look today at uh, uh, share price to, to book value, and U.S. banks are trading at, you know, 120 percent. European banks still 60, 65 percent.
5: Right. And so I think, um, so So again, the, the the banks obviously in the U.S. have done very well. Um, Citigroup is still trading uh, below book value. So we expect they're going to skew more towards um, buybacks, um, in general, more towards buybacks. But on the Europeans, I would say, so two key things. So one, what's interesting in the stress test this year, it's going to be the first time that uh, banks like Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank don't have to worry about a qualitative objective, And so that's interesting because we've had Archegos, we've Mm. had issues at Deutsche Bank. So I think they're breathing a sigh of relief that they don't – it's an incremental risk, but one they don't have to worry about.
1: All right. Of course, they have other issues as well. You (laughs) mentioned Archegos and Credit Suisse uh, is definitely among the most read stories every day here in Europe. Alison Williams, senior bank analyst. This is Bloomberg.